Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Right now, Seema Shah with us out of the London School of Economics. There's some real distinction there with principal global investors and their chief strategists. Seema, you are decidedly half full. What do the half-empty people, that the gloom crew, what do they get wrong? Uh, I think they're really concerned about supply shortages, of course. But I think the market has really prepped that in. And now it's about looking for the companies which are, uh, well, looking away from the companies which are particularly vulnerable. Um, And I think there's a lot of concerns about growth. You know, growth is slowing, but it's still pretty solid. Um, And that should be enough to carry us through. And certainly for risk assets, it's still a supportive environment. When I look at the supportive environment here, and we saw the supportive environment from J.P. Morgan, what will you look at for U.S. forward tone that will lead to supportive? What do you want to hear on those endless conference calls? Yeah, so I think for the banks, um, it's going to be a little bit different, right? Because they are going to be less vulnerable to some of the supply bottlenecks that, we, that we've been worried about. They're less vulnerable to the energy prices. So what we want to see from them is how do they see the consumer panning out? Now, the, the good thing for the consumer is a little bit of a negative for banks. So that's the thing that we need to watch. But generally from earnings seasons, we want to know what their guidance is on profit margins. So how are they dealing with that? Are they starting to be concerned about wage pressures? Or is it something that they can ride through? Or additionally, do they feel like they've got enough pricing power to pass this on to consumers? So those are the nuances that we're going to be watching for. But I have to say, I think we're expecting a pretty solid earnings season. Um, And going into 2021, it's just about maybe a slightly more challenging environment. It's still pretty solid. So the idea that Apple uh, reportedly by Bloomberg yesterday, it was going to cut production significantly because of the chip shortage, that it has not rippled through markets more. Does that indicate to you that we've already priced in all potential supply chain disruptions and that from here you only have upside in terms of those pressures facing certain companies? I think that there's definitely an element of that. I think the market has know so much about the supply chain issues. They know that it's going to last until 2022. They've made that adjustment in terms of expectations. And on top of that, you know, we all hate the word transitory, but maybe some of these, these problems for Apple are likely to be transitory. This is just the third. So, you know, we should see them picking up some of those gains again once supply shortages are finished. So, Seema, are you against uh, big tech at this point because you do see the pressure upwards in yields and this idea that you're going to continue to see uh, a further correction there? Or do you think that it's time to go back because they have suffered the most over the past month and a half? Yeah, we are definitely um, still supportive for for big cap tech, uh, make cap tech. And the reason is that, yes, it's been a slightly challenging environment with yields, but we do think that that's near the top, right? We don't see that much um, additional movement here from here on, which is going to be particularly steep or disruptive. And then just generally for big cap tech, yes, there are supply chain shortages which will impact them, but the overall longer term demand is still really strong. Um, and, you know, as we said, the environment is getting slightly more challenging. This is a time when you want balance sheets, you want the big profit margins, the companies that have the power to deal with some of those maybe uh, margin pressures which are going to be facing the economy in the next year or so. Seema, thank you. We have to leave it there. Fantastic to catch up with you out of London, as always. Seema Shah there of Principal Global Investors.
This time is always different. It's bank earnings. You bring in Allison Williams, Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Bank Analyst. Allison, I want you to explain what Fortress J.P. Morgan looks like. These are ratios you and I never studied. We never framed 22% tangible equity. The profitability seems overwhelming. Can it endure? Well, some of it can. I, I would say that the two big surprises that we got this quarter are, are similar to the drivers of, of positive surprises in recent quarters, and that's the investment bank and the reserve releases. So the reserve releases are something that uh, really helps the bottom line this year, um, hurt the bottom line last year. And so obviously that's that's something that's not sustainable. Uh, the global investment bank continues to surprise to the upside this quarter. It's really equities, um, trading revenue growth, very strong. Um, advisory fees, a new record. Um, so, so those are key positives. They really set the bar ahead of uh, Goldman and Morgan Stanley tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. But net interest income, that's the key um, metric that investors are focusing on this quarter. So for J.P. Morgan came in bang in line, um, which I, is a bit neutral. But what investors are going to be digging into are what are the prospects for loan growth um, that can give us a little lift going forward. And so I would say there's enough there to sort of feed the optimism, but, um, but you know, nothing over the top. So signs of green shoots is yeah. what we're hearing from J.P. Morgan. We've heard that from Wells Fargo. Um, and and so some positives there, but I, I think needs to get a little bit better. Ellison, broadly, this is being taken as a positive for the economic story as well as for other banks. And yet the advisory fees, I want to really hone in on that, the idea that they hit a record. Could this be taking some of the business, some of the market share away from the likes of Morgan Stanley? Or is the market right to shrug this off and says it's just basically a green light for advisory businesses all across the street? I think for M&A, it is definitely the latter. I mean, I think it's going to be a great quarter for all the banks. You know, the equity trading side of things, I think, is is where you might be seeing a little bit more market shift. But equity advisory fees, and we saw this um, from Jefferies earlier uh, this month. You know, last quarter was was a record for Jefferies. They this quarter a new record. Um, J.P. Morgan, you know, triple what we were a year ago. That's not that impressive, given it was a week year ago. But sizable growth from last quarter. And we do think that the fundamentals are there for J.P. Morgan and for the banks broadly um, to continue this sort of record-setting M&A pace. Alison, for people in the audience right now who aren't familiar with the way these earnings are delivered on the front page, the first page, you get Jamie Dimon's comments down the right side of that page. At the bottom there is this comment here. This quarter, we became the first bank to have branches in all of the lower 48 states. Now, that's not news, Alison, but we know there's been a big push here to expand from the likes of J.P. Morgan and others. What's the effort here? What's behind it? And how important is it? It is important. And this is a multi-year uh, plan that's taking place at J.P. Morgan, uh, similar at, at Bank of America. They're already um, significant across the country, but, you know, uh, uh, rounding out their footprint, if you will. And so while there's a lot of focus for banks on technology and the digital side of things, that's that's really been sort of a boon to the bottom line um, and increasingly focusing on the top line, um, they are building branches in new markets. And, you know, the banks are 
the global banks, the, the biggest banks, Bank of America and J.P. Morgan, winning share where they want. And we think this sort of comes back to, um, you know, the level of technology investments that that sort of helps them be more efficient broadly, um, as well as, you know, seeking out these new markets. Alison, thank you. As always, Alison Williams, J.P. Morgan up by six tenths of one percent. A whole host of banks reporting earnings tomorrow. Then on to Goldman on Friday. This is an important conversation. One of the great moments of Bloomberg surveillance, John Farrell was there as well with Francine Lacroix, was Kenneth Rogoff and Joseph Stiglitz on set with us in Davos. It was a trenchant moment in World Bank IMF history. We are honored today to have Laureate Stiglitz with us from Columbia University to sketch out the uproar in Washington over data integrity. Joe, I thought you covered so much ground in your Project Syndicate essay in your defense of the managing director of the IMF. The question seems to be, if we're going to do data, try to do data that's not politically tinged. Have these meetings and these institutions that you worked at, have they become too political? Well, there's always going to be a, a political element. Uh, the report that was the subject of all this controversy was the doing business report. And that was a report that was uh, always problematic. In fact, uh, just a decade ago, I testified to Congress uh, about why that was a bad report and ought to be uh, scrapped. Uh, they said that doing business meant, uh, doing well on that meant not treating your workers well, weakening labor uh, market protections, uh, lowering corporate income tax. My view was uh, progressive taxation, finances, infrastructure, and that makes, and, and right. education <clears throat> makes for a stronger economy. So right. you're absolutely right. If you're going to have data, make sure that by its very nature, it's not right. a political database. Joe Stiglitz, do you believe that Dr. Gorgieva, whoever follows on from David Malpass at the World Bank, will they be tinged by this? Is she, does she have too much baggage now to do her job for the remaining three years? Absolutely not. In fact, if you look closely at what she did, she stood up for data integrity. What she said is we're not going to monkey with the methodology, she instructed her staff to make sure the data is right, do exactly what I would have done if I were in a position. Uh, and it turned out that when they looked at the data, there were some rounding errors, they, they, they adjusted uh, things. And the difference, uh, this whole controversy is about whether China was at 83rd or 75th in the ranking. And that difference is not statistically significant. It's basically a tie. So, and what they said was, our data confirmed what we said before, we did a little adjustment. What they should have done is explained the uh, lack of uh, statistical significance to this difference between 75 and 83rd. 
Professor Stiglitz, there's a broader story here of increasing politicization of central bankers in general, of some of the financial authorities around the world. And I speak about this with the Federal Reserve in particular, Randy Quarles, stepping down as the vice chair of supervision. How much does this weaken the role of the likes of the Federal Reserve going forward at a time when they are more pivotal than ever to markets? Uh, you cannot remove our regulatory authorities from the political context. You know, we had a crisis in 2008. Some people seem to have forgotten that. And one side of our political spectrum says it didn't occur uh, and we ought to uh, deregulate. The other side says 2008 actually occurred. It occurred because we did not have adequate regulation and we need to maintain a strong regulatory framework. That has become polit political. But uh, it's also uh, the essence of economics. And the same thing goes for climate change. Climate risk is a financial risk. Countries all over the world have recognized it. But in the United States, we seem not to have fully taken this on board. And I'm very concerned that the chairman of the Federal Reserve has not taken on board the real risks associated with climate change to our financial system to our banking system. Professor, what do you say to the accusation that your own thoughts might be shaped by your own politics? I'm reading the Project Syndicate piece. You defend the managing director of the IMF, but you raise the issues with the World Bank president, David Malpass, which of course was supported by the former administration. You're now going after the chairman of the Federal Reserve, which of course was nominated by Republicans. What would you say back to people that said your own views are shaped by your own personal politics? Well, I mean, Obviously, I'm, uh, the issues we were talking about, regulation, uh, climate change, are issues I feel very deeply about, but they're also economic issues. Uh, in the case of uh, David Malpass, Bloomberg itself exposed the attempt of David Malpass to interfere with the methodology that was used in the Doing Business Report, a far graver concern than telling your staff to make sure the numbers are right. And yet it is so strange that there has been no discussion about that intervention in the methodology, a far graver concern than uh, uh, what she did, which was trying to maintain the integrity uh, of the data given the methodology. Professor, we appreciate your time. We always do. Thank you for your contribution this morning. Joe Stiglitz there, the Columbia University professor and, of course, the Nobel laureate in economics. We had some technical difficulties with Fatih Birol a little bit earlier this hour. I understand we can catch up with him right now, the International Energy Agency Executive Director. Fatih, forgive me, we've got to cut this short because we had some technical difficulties with you, but let's start right here. The energy transition is increasingly difficult right now worldwide because consumers are starting to see higher prices of fossil fuels. How compromised is that transition at the moment, sir? Uh, thank you. I think... Uh there might be a misunderstanding or some people are trying to portray it in a way as if the current market crisis uh, is the first uh, crisis of the clean energy transitions and the current station with natural gas or oil or coal, it has nothing to do with the clean energy transitions. There are different fundamental drivers uh, for that and in my view, clean energy is not the 
cause, but the solution uh, to this uh, problem uh, we have. So therefore, it is important to put this in a perspective. And the uh, price of oil, uh, you were just talking about a few minutes ago. Today, it is uh, above $80. But uh, today, we, the world uh, consumes about 96 million barrels per day. And only 2019, the world was consuming much higher, 100 million barrels per day of oil, and the price was uh, $60. So we cannot uh, talk about so, the lack of investment to oil or other things. Uh, there is enough oil in the, in the world, but uh, the uh, high oil prices must be a result of uh, other things rather than the lack of capacity or lack of investments. Fatih, as a representative both of the energy industry as well as a proponent of tri the transition to a cleaner energy future, do you think the price of oil should stay high, should go even higher to expedite the transition period? I think the current uh, prices, uh, oil, uh, gas, uh, coal prices are a serious challenge for the global economic uh, recovery through uh, higher inflation. And as such, uh, those uh, prices I would like to see as uh, lower than they are now. But regardless of the prices, uh, clean energy is coming very strongly. It is the electric cars, it is the, uh, the solar, it is the wind. Just today, I just uh, saw the electric car sales in China, the largest car manufacturers. Uh, the, it is more than 20% of all the cars sold in China are electric cars. Same in Europe. It is going to grow and it will end up, uh, I, I expect, a big impact on the oil demand. We shouldn't be uh, fixated what is happening today in the markets as a result of the unsustainable economic recovery around the world. Yeah. Let's look at a bit beyond, beyond this. And uh, I expect that the current climate policies of many governments from China to United States, United States to Europe and others will have significant implications for the uh, global energy markets. Fancy, we have to leave it there. We had to cut it short for some technical difficulties. Fanny, please come back soon. We'll have a longer conversation on an important topic. Fanny B-Roll there, the IEA Executive Director. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.